For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. Welcome. I'm joined by Jacob Kurtzer, director of the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda, for today's conversation. Our guest today is Jada McKenna, Chief Executive Officer of Mercy Corps. Before joining Mercy Corps, Jada served as Chief Operating Officer of CARE and COO of Habitat for Humanity International. Jada also served in the U.S. government, including as assistant to the USAID Administrator for the Bureau for Food Security and Deputy Coordinator of Feed the Future. She also worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, McKinsey & Company, and in several other positions in the private sector. Those of us who have worked with Jada were very happy to welcome her to Mercy Corps and back to the D.C. community last fall. And today, Jada, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. To begin, I searched for a pithy explanation of what Mercy Corps is and what Mercy Corps does, but it's such a vast organization, over 5,600 humanitarians working in over 40 countries worldwide. How do you define and describe Mercy Corps? I describe and define Mercy Corps as an organization that works with people in complex situations and providing solutions for those people. So the brilliant thing and the thing I love about Mercy Corps is we have the full range of programmatic activity ranging from like immediate humanitarian needs in a natural disaster or an acute conflict to development settings where people are just suffering from poverty, helping those. And then we also do a lot of work along the peace building spectrum as well and look at conflict and governance and conflict prevention quite a bit. So it's quite a nice mix. And you'll see that we operate in over 40 countries and, and they range from Yemen to the Bahamas after the <laughs> hurricane. So uh, it's, you know, it, it's quite the range. Building on that, you did an interview with Mercy Corps when you first came on and you said, what I've come to love and appreciate is how intertwined and interconnected all of these issues are. So you mentioned safe housing, human health, having access to financial services, et cetera. Do you feel like in this role, you're able to address the whole spectrum? I definitely feel like I'm able to address the whole spectrum. And we work with a wide variety of partners. One thing I love is we also do a lot of work with local private sector participants and local organizations, and they work across as well. So, you know, the more you're in this world, it, it is all intertwined. And, and we say it as people living in complex situations, but they all feed off of each other in negative ways. Yeah. So something else I want to build on, as you mentioned, that Mercy Corps does a variety of work ranging from immediate humanitarian assistance to development type work to peace building. Just wondering if you can talk specifically about coordination between the development work and the humanitarian work. And that's something where I think people in this field are constantly noting that there's more work to be done when it comes to coordination. So last year's global report on food crises, for example, said that there is much room to improve the coordination between humanitarian and development efforts in order to enhance impact and address the root causes of protracted crises. So do you feel like 
with Mercy Corps addressing this different variety of needs that you're able to see this intersection and address this more effectively? Yeah. So even when we are working on humanitarian programs, we see the need to take the long view to lay the foundation for long-term prosperity and well-being. So we intentionally try to layer those things on top of each other and be thoughtful about our approaches to prevent the backsliding into poverty or into conflict in the future. And even when it's a natural disaster, you're trying to build resilience in those communities for the next one, because especially with climate change, they're more prone to come. So we always talk about the long view and we often find ourselves in situations where we're doing the immediate needs while at the same time, like building job markets or, or doing other things, because we, we definitely see ourselves as, as laying the foundation at the same time. I want to ask you about that because, you know, in the Washington community, short-term crises get a lot of attention and are easier to generate, to some extent are easier for funding and for generating political attention. What steps can you take in your position as the head of an organization that wants to build resilience to shift that narrative a little bit and emphasize to policymakers to think about the long-term response and not just the short-term, you know, the crisis management? Are there narratives or stories or messages that you found successful in helping people in Congress think longer term about these humanitarian slash development contexts? One of the things that we and a coalition of other actors really pushed for was something called the Global Fragility Act. It's a groundbreaking piece of legislation that passed with bipartisan support. It says the U.S. government is committed to looking at the causes of conflict and doing work to lay the groundwork so that to, to help prevent conflict. So hopefully even just the beginning of, of building that into system. And so we call on the government to fully implement that. And we also are very committed to doing research around what what works to help prevent conflict. We also talk a lot about the importance of investing in and responding to early warning systems and, and early action systems around these things because you, you see them all building up. Unfortunately, COVID is also another situation where I think it helps people to understand the long-term impacts of these things, and hopefully that will make the conversation easier. So a lot of people have fallen back into poverty because of COVID. They're not going to get out of that through emergency programming, right? Industries that were decimated or people who lost their businesses are not going to be able to just turn around and, and restart a business. And in particular, some of the things that we're seeing around nutrition and food insecurity, it will take us a while to build those things back as well. So right now that the money that Congress has authorized has still been all for emergency response, but we are constantly talking to legislators about the importance of thinking of this as like multi-year programming coming out of it, because you can't fix all these things overnight and, and you do need to take a long-term approach. You touched on a few things I want to turn to, looking to this administration in particular. Along with climate change, conflict is also a major driver of humanitarian emergencies worldwide. One of the members of your executive team, one of your vice presidents, Dina Esposito with Olga Petriniak, wrote an essay for CSIS last fall, and they said that humanitarian action is no substitute for the political leadership necessary to prevent and end famine 
and the armed conflict that fuel it. So when it comes to this administration, do you think there are specific examples of steps the United States can take to address ongoing crises and prevent future crises? Political leadership is super critical. And we're encouraged by the administration's recent efforts, like, for example, ending the U.S. support for the war in Yemen, increasing refugee admissions providing funds for COVAX distribution. And those are hopefully those types of steps and others like it will be important to prevent more conflicts and more food insecurity as a result of those conflicts. Before the pandemic, the number of armed conflicts globally was at a 30-year high. (laughs) And we know from past pandemics like HIV, AIDS, and Ebola, the risk of armed conflict just increases with them as people lose their faith in governments to provide solutions, as you have a lot of like idle youth and, and you do have groups that try to take advantage of this by being the savior when the governments can't. So the virus right now is a threat multiplier for sure on conflict. And when you add on top of it, things like mistrust in vaccines or, or bad information, social cohesion phrase. The political response is very important, but we also think that the programming that we do, which includes things like looking at what social media is saying that's bad statements about immigrants or about vaccine, kind of combating that hands-on and the means that we have to do it and other programs to kind of bring people together, is it's really important. Oh, that's really interesting. Just a side note, I was reading about the rumor tracker that Mercy Corps set up. I believe it's in Northeast Nigeria to do exactly that. So yes, tracking misinformation. Exactly. Yes. Jake, over to you. In the context of COVID as both something that has enabled policymakers to think differently about global threats and in the context of what can we be doing differently politically, When the Biden administration came in 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 National Security Directive number one, they called for a review of economic sanctions, particularly those that impacted the global humanitarian response to COVID. And I'm wondering, you know, from the Mercy Corps perspective, thinking about the kinds of countries that you work in, the Yemens and, and Somalias and the Northeast Nigerias, Those are all contexts in which there are a series of restrictive measures, including sanctions, but also other counterterrorism regulations that humanitarian organizations have long argued inhibit the ability to reach the most vulnerable and to do the work that you're being asked to do by the U.S. government or the United Nations. So what steps do you think are needed to ensure humanitarian work, at least, is protected in these environments when there are the restrictive measures are in place. As you mentioned, we work in a number of these environments where U.S. sanctions are active. And of course, we have systems in place for compliance and laws. Let me point to a few things that could be helpful. One is around the banking sector, uh, surprisingly. So a lot of times banks are hesitant to conduct business with nonprofits, even when the sanctions include humanitarian safeguards, because they are fearful of these sanctions. So some NGOs, we faced unreasonable bureaucratic requirements by banks, delays in receiving money for our activities and bank closures. So one of the things that we urged the administration to do and others is to engage directly with the banking sector to explain the humanitarian 
programs that are funded and the requirements. Also by having regular dialogue between humanitarian organizations, banks, and financial regulators, we can achieve this. But we also, of course, want to see the inclusion of really broad humanitarian exemptions with all that. The other particular issue that we have is the counterterrorism measures, as you mentioned. So the material support statute is another place that's very difficult for us because under this law, NGOs who are operating in places where foreign terrorists organizations control territory, they risk penalties if we pay fees such as roll tolls or taxes that are necessary for that timely delivery of aid to civilians. We most recently saw this in Yemen when the Trump administration designated Ansar Allah as an as an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization. Ansar Allah is the de facto authority governing the northern parts of Yemen. So humanitarian actors have to interact with them in order to get the permit and the permissions that we needed to provide aid. So while the administration issued a broad license to authorize a variety of transactions with Ansar Allah like that, NGOs are still subject to prosecution under the material support statute, which really just leaves us open to risk. And some organizations choose not to operate in those areas because of that. So we do call on Congress to amend that material support statute to provide exceptions for NGOs so that we can continue to provide life-saving aid in these contexts. You mentioned at the onset of the conversation the broad spectrum of work that Mercy Corps does, humanitarian development and peace building. How does that in some ways complicate the issue, both with respect to the U.S. side, if you're asking for humanitarian exemptions, right? how do you think about distinguishing work projects? And then secondarily, does that multi-mandate, which is in some ways necessary to meet the agendas of the Global Fragility Act, the Triple Nexus, this and that. Does it create any complications with groups like Ansar Allah or, you know, Al-Shabaab in Somalia who will say, well, you're telling us you're a humanitarian organization just here to bring food, but you're also carrying out this peace-building organization and we're not interested in making peace. So you have a clear political agenda. How do you try to navigate that complication, you know, in Washington and in, you know, Mogadishu or, or Borno State? Well, we navigate it all very carefully is the short answer. We do see these things as intertwined and, and the type of movement towards the long-term planning will vary by context, right? Maybe we can't do an official peace building program, but, but we could do a program for youth that is keeping them employed or giving them jobs to do in, um, the, in the providing of the humanitarian aid. And that's kind of a stealth way that to do peace building and and to you know to just provide outlets for people so that they aren't tempted to join other groups. One thing that I like to turn to is Mercy Corps' approach to food security. So in your past positions, you've addressed food insecurity through the long-term development lens and also from the emergency assistant lens. And one thing that I think is unique about Mercy Corps is that among your programs, you have an agriculture program and a food security nutrition program. And what that says to me is that the solutions to food insecurity may or may not lie in agriculture, that there might be solutions to food insecurity and malnutrition that that lie outside of the agriculture sector. And when you testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, you mentioned people who were experiencing poverty and food insecurity of all sorts of different types. So women managing restaurants on the street corner in, in Kampala, people involved in petty trade in Nairobi, domestic workers in Ethiopia. Can you give us some examples of, of what you're doing to address food insecurity outside of the traditional solutions, which are agriculture-based, particularly in the context of the pandemic? 
Food insecurity, it is a system, right? And, you know, there are some things that I think a lot of us do outside of agriculture. Nutrition training, you mentioned, is, is important. Talking about patterns in the household around who eats and who doesn't eat. I was in a country recent, recently, well, before pandemic, uh, where the, the main audience for all of these things around ending child marriage or talking about the dangers of it or the nutritional needs of pregnant mothers is, is all about talking to the mother-in-laws, right? <laughs> uh, so I think understanding how families make decisions, um, working with those populations, like teaching people about, you know, the dangers of, of child marriage and child pregnancies, all those things kind of work and, and move into food insecurity, and also just helping families think about how they want to space their children. And building businesses and markets and jobs are, are also things that, that help people directly outside of agriculture, but anything that helps increase incomes and increase services to food producers is quite helpful. Yeah. Turning again to the pandemic. So you joined Mercy Corps smack in the middle. It was October 2020. And when you started, I'm wondering which challenges have remained constant throughout the pandemic and which challenges have cropped up and maybe which have subsided. Will there be long-term implications for how Mercy Corps does your work? So the short-term ones that came up immediately that I think all of us faced is just how to how to do work in the, in the COVID environment. So there are some things we could do remotely, like for for women's groups that we worked with, we you know figured out how to space people more, how, how to hold those meetings in safer ways. We moved to contactless distribution for some of our cash programming where we could move things onto cards and vouchers where there were physical distributions before, and there has been an increase in the use of digital technologies, both by the people we serve and by Mercy Corps in this. So those are things that we have learned and that we figured out how to do in the context of COVID that will stay. And I think it really has made us think about how we do our work and and more effective ways of doing our work and how much we can still do um, without that travel has has been really eye-opening. So I, I definitely think there are implications for that long term for us. Of the things that do remain, you know, COVID came on top of everything else, right? So it came on top of a locust outbreak, or it came on, it came on top of the normal day-to-day in Yemen. And so um, the underlying stuff is the same. I think what, what COVID has added to it is those more people out of work, more people languishing, the risk of conflict increasing, like the fraying social cohesion that you see, like increases in demonstrations. And those are things we have to, to really watch long term. And the other thing, even this short term, we're seeing more child marriages, more burdens placed on women, more girls being kept out of schools to care for families. And those are things that we are going to have to be addressing for, for years to come. You know, it's it's challenging. And, and I, even for our staff there, you know, their staff who are scheduled to do trainings or to do other things. And, and, and the fact that there isn't that travel or that mobility for some has, has it's been difficult and it's something that we've got to keep working around. Building on this line of questioning and back to the essay that Mercy Corps wrote for CSIS last fall, Dean Esposito and Olga Petroniak also said that the acute, protracted and expanding nature of today's food crises demand new approaches. Can you give us some examples of some new approaches that you think today's overlapping multi-layered challenges uh, require? New approaches like the creative ways to do our programs. 
we have this AgriFin program in, in East Africa, and we, uh, we our partners reach 16 million in Africa with COVID-19 and desert locust emergency support using like WhatsApp, SMS, hotlines. Some of the new new strategies were like remote working with other partners to provide remote education or catch up curriculum for girls, especially that they could still do while caregiving or doing other things in their home. We also used radio and text messaging to deliver like education lessons and life skills and to talk about um, the, the danger of pulling the girls out of school for so long. The other thing that there has been an increase of is just human trafficking. You and women cited that. And we've seen that like women are just on the front lines of this in, in every way. And so really focusing on, on the different needs of women in this and thinking about it more holistically have been some changes that we've made that will definitely stay. A related question. This is something that Jake and I talk about informally. I don't think necessarily formally as part of our programming, but Everyone around the world is experiencing this crisis at the same time. So do you think there's something about the United States and maybe even, you know, your own experience of of this crisis that informs the way that you're thinking about how to address the crisis in other countries and other populations? Yeah, it has been really eye-opening for us to all experience this at the same time and, and to all be worried about, you know, our families and like there's no break from it. And what's been remarkable, and I hope it leads to increased empathy and understanding of, of what people in other environments face is like, we have long food lines here in the U.S., right? Hopefully they'll understand what that's like in, in contexts where maybe there isn't that same safety net or operating food banks to help people. I think for us, that additional empathy of having lived it, I think people who do this work, humanitarians naturally have that empathy, but understanding, okay, vaccine mistrust is going to be a huge issue, right? Like we've seen it first. <laughs> so now we are proactively figuring out who we can partner with to already start talking about vaccine trust and, and how to think about things. And in some ways we saw that the COVID crisis came to the regions we serve later, right? Like there've been waves of it. And so by it hitting in the U.S. first, it also made us more prepared to, to warn countries or even when they hadn't seen it yet to understand what to be on the lookout for. Like we were able to set up funds for people who work in our offices, like the coffee and tea ladies, who if it ever closed down, were going to be affected before it even happened in those countries because we could see it coming. I understand both from our conversation today and from previous work with colleagues of yours at Mercy Corps, and sorry we're jumping around a bit, but I guess that's the life of a CEO, that Mercy Corps emphasizes this markets-based approach. And, and you talked a little bit about working with local organizations or even like the local private sector. And, you know, localization as a, as a big picture topic has been the name of the game for five years. Decolonization has become the word of the year in, in the humanitarian sector. And the question for you is kind of as a CEO, how do you balance, you know, the times when you say actually Mercy Corps has to be the one leading this program versus, you know, getting Mercy Corps out of the way and empowering the local organizations, you know, such that you achieve that, you know, true resilience of we're, we won't be needed in five years. Uh, how do you think about that in the various different contexts you work on and make those decisions of when we, we need to put ourselves forward and when we need to step back? 
I do think about localization a lot. And, uh, you know, the first step for us has really been figuring out the definite, like all the different things we want to include in localization. So to some people, it's exactly just what you were saying, like ceding power to local NGOs and stepping back. But to us, I think it, it goes across a range, right? It's around who's staffing the different things and what our local organizations look like. There is about the partnership. And, and I absolutely agree, like the sharing of power and the seeding of power is, is important. And, and that is the next step in the work. For us, it also does include like this work with local ecosystems, which includes like local entrepreneurs and local markets. We have programs where we have a venture fund that'll help a local entity that serves low income people with like, you know, uh, a $500 grant to do to get business development money or, or to get training and something things that others don't do. I had a conversation with one of my teams in a country that's approaching um, middle income, right? And the way that I see it and a conversation that we that we need to start having is we are in some countries where local civil society is, is really blooming and local NGOs are blooming. And our job at that point is to transfer what we know or to think about what are the things that we uniquely as an international organization to provide them and to have the discipline or to work with them and to have the discipline to not take on certain things that, that they could do well. And I think for us, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but it, it's hard sometimes to internalize this. But for us, a marker of success is being able to leave a country entirely, right, um, to go put those resources to another place that's needed. And so there are more honest conversations that I'm having as a CEO about the fact that, you know, this there are countries that we've been in for, you know, a long time that, that maybe don't need us as much anymore. And like, what is that? What is that look like and and how are we intentionally transferring those things and and i i think this is a conversation that's going to come up but i but really thinking about what our unique advantages and doing that really well is, is going to be critical for for our future as an organization and in supporting the localization agendas yeah, I think knowing knowing when not to step in or knowing when it's time to go is probably the hardest thing for organizations like yours that are motivated by a humanitarian, you know, by, by a sense of service and an opportunity to, to help. It's very hard to, to make that calculus. I've been proud of our team. There are some intentional kind of longer term shutdowns that we call We just did a sunset ceremony for our work in Mongolia last week. That was really beautiful, like celebrating all that we've accomplished. But also like that process of sunsetting is very intentional as well with local governments and organizations to to ensure that um, that that support is there and that you're really leaving in a very responsible way. And it was it was really wonderful to see that happening there with our team. Is there anything then that you can draw from Mercy Corps' experience internationally and in some ways sort of return the service to the domestic population and say, hey, look, we, you know, we've been doing this project wherever where we had real vaccine hesitancy because we understood and we listened and, and we did X, Y and Z. Now we've solved this problem. Is there anything that you can think about now where you say, you know, we actually have a service that we can provide either, you know, in Portland or in Washington or anywhere in the United States where there's a need that you can learn the lessons from your experience abroad. 
There are a couple of things. The rumor tracker work that we've done and specifically arming officials with those specific things to counteract is, is something that, that we've been a part of. We've also, in the state of Oregon, the governor asked us to be on a task force that was um, looking at how to solve some of the vaccine inequity going on there. And, you know, our lessons about how to work with underserved communities, how to partner with organizations and people in those communities and, and how to form groups and how to approach, I think, was helpful in that exercise. We did bring some programming to the U.S. So one of the programs that we had is called MicroMentor, where we provide support to small entrepreneurs in other countries. That is something that we were able to bring to the U.S. in bigger force and expand our programming. And we specifically targeted it to the BIPOC communities in the U.S. that were disproportionately suffering after COVID and the economic effects of those things. So it's been interesting for us and and good to be able to, to do something like that and to expand here in the U.S. The other thing that I hope we'll bring back, and and I think we need to look at our role in it, is in a lot of the countries we work, especially in Africa, there is a respect for public health officials and public health messaging, right? People have suffered from other public health crises, and they know how to adapt and adjust. It's so rare for us that I think there's been a high level of of denial or, or not knowing what to do. I do hope that we can bring those lessons going forward to help the American people deal with these things as well. It's becoming clear to me through this conversation that Mercy Corps looks at any one set of challenges from a multitude of lenses. So, I mean, we might be talking about a food insecurity crisis in some region and and the solution might lie in, you know, addressing conflict through looking at social media communications patterns, or, you know, it, it might lie in decision-making at the household level, or you know, who knows what it is. So it seems like at the operational level, you certainly work across sectors. Picking up on something that you said in your HVAC hearing that you testified in, you talked about the need to break down silos within USAID. And um, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something along the lines of, we need to encourage USAID to break down internal silos and ensure that peace building, development, aid, and humanitarian programs build on one another, that we have comprehensive and coordinated response. Breaking down silos is a very legitimate instruction. We hear it a lot, and I think most people don't really know how to take that to another level of specificity, but given where you've served within USAID, can you offer some more specific examples of of what you think aid could be doing right now to break down their own internal silos? Yeah, you know, one of the things we have the benefit of as an implementing organization is really speaking to the communities that we work with about what their needs are and, and letting them lead in, in a lot of ways in terms of talking about what they need or what they would like to see. And I think that naturally leads to some of the silo breaking that we've been successful at doing. It's very tough in government because people are hired as like experts on specific things and there are different reporting structures and and also different things that Congress is asking of different types of work. So a few things I, I would suggest that they do help to inform and explain to Congress how the inter to provide some incentives for more of that interrelational programming. Some of the restructuring that USAID has done has been to kind of bring together sectors a little bit more and break down some of those silos on limited ways. There might have to be more of like pollination across bureaus or people that are moving around bureaus or saying that certain types of grants and awards have to have a look from another bureau where we know that work is closely connected to to provide advice and guidance on how to incorporate more into that work. So, but I think they will have to set up some specific 
system or structure or, or group of people or process that makes sure that, that the work that's being developed is looked at by some of the other verticals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's absolutely correct to bring in that in some instances, this actually starts with Congress. So the acts that might mandate certain strategies, you know, they don't, don't look cross-sectorally. So that actually encourages that siloed thinking. So it's not an easy challenge to fix, but thanks for those examples. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies when it comes to data, because we all want evidence of what works, right? And so then you get into attribution discussions. Well, did this work because of the food funding or did this work because of the health funding? And I think we, we need to work with, within the monitoring and evaluation community as well to understand how to do that or how to talk about ways that address those needs that people have in their programming as well. Great. Okay, Jada. Based on your experience with Mercy Corps and all of the other experience that you've had to date, and looking at policymaking today, what do you think policymakers are getting right and what do you think they're missing? Policymakers are increasingly like very, very sophisticated about this work. And I think they're getting it right because a lot of them travel to these places. They take advantage of trips with NGOs. They actually visit the work and they're constantly listening through hearings and getting the Global Fragility Act passed, like having people think of drivers to conflict, being able to provide them with research. It's just an incredibly more sophisticated relationship. And and I've seen it as, as time goes on. And it's really wonderful. I think the things that, not that we're getting wrong, but that that remain difficult that we need to think through is the fact that we need more of the multi-year sustained program. We should not be thinking about emergency and humanitarian as like one-year special things. We need to think of those as multi-year efforts. And I understand why politically that may be hard, but we need to be more understanding and and think of it as multi-year with certain goals versus having to do single year over and over and over again or getting hit with the same thing the next time. I'm really pleased to see the U.S. government embrace resilience and climate change. I think those are two things that provide lasting change, but lawmakers have to work on what that means from from a budgeting and planning perspective and what the right metrics are with those things. I'm just increasingly encouraged by how much there is to do together and, and how many more opportunities there are and that there will continue to be. So thank you for bringing attention to the issues. Thank you very much for your time. Of course, thank you for joining us. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSISfood. Until next time.